Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Denis Provencher, the author of Queer Maghrebi French, Language, Temporalities, Transfiliations, and the book was published by Liverpool University Press in 2017. Hi there, Denis. Hi, Roxanne. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Sure. It's a real pleasure. I really admire your series. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on the themes and issues you explore in the book? Yeah, you know, you call me Denis Provencher, and I grew up as Dennis Provencher in uh, <laughs> in New England. And so, you know, like many, many second generation Franco-Americans, uh, I learned French at school and uh, I majored in French. I went to France on study abroad in the, in the early 90s, and I really became interested in French civilization and cultural studies. And when I was an undergrad at the University of Vermont, I remember having a very inspirational professor who um, she presented us with Le Tour de France par deux enfants. It was a it was a, a, a an education manual from the the Third Republic, and I thought, wow, I can really I can really do some interesting things in French studies, uh, moving beyond not only the literary text but moving into other types of cultural productions and all kinds of objects. And I think also as a kid coming out in the 1980s and early 1990s during the AIDS epidemic, it was really uh, it. It was a formative time for me, and I wanted to compare and contrast how uh, young folks were talking about sexual identity in Europe and in the United States. And so that's kind of what led me on to uh, study about LGBT issues in, in France and in Francophone contexts. I notice, well, it's hard not to notice that the title of this book seems anyway to be pretty obviously a building on your previous work and in particular, queer French. Could you say a little bit about the relationship between that earlier work and this project? Yeah, sure. And I mean, uh, for many of us, our work is just as much personal as it is professional. And when I thought about queer French, I really wanted to compare myself to what was going on in France. And the dialectic there was kind of the the juxtaposition of the good sexual citizen and the bad sexual citizen. And at the very end of that book, uh, I end the, the, the last chapter with a map of a young French Arab man. And I use that term because he uses that term. He called himself a Francais Arabe. Mm-hmm. And I asked young LGBT uh, individuals in France to draw me a cartography of Gay City. And uh, Samir was his name. When Samir drew the map of Gay City and Gay Paris, much of what was at the heart of the Marais district was was missing. And so there was this erasure, or what I'm calling in queer Maghrebi French as a response to that, a kind of impossible situation for queers of color in France through that erasure in city center. And it's really there that I pick up uh, the the introduction, as you know, uh, with Samir's map in the introductory chapter and move forward with trying to trace and to to draw the the borders of queer identity for uh, queers of color in France. I want to ask a little bit about the title, at least the, the QMF, Queer Maghrebi French, the significance of the way that this title is, is written, its lack of punctuation, hyphenation. Could you say a little bit about how the use of those three terms and the way that you've put them together in this title, what does that tell us about your way of thinking about identities and their intersection in this project? Yeah, in, in lots of ways, I'm inspired by Mireille Rosello's work on performative encounters. And in one of her chapters in Performative Encounters, she says, imagine if we didn't talk about France uh, and Algeria as a Franco-Algerian relationship with a hyphen in between. What if we took the hyphen out? 
and we replaced it with some other uh, marker or if we left it completely blank what if we put a question mark between Franco and Algerian and I thought how beautiful is that talking about some sort of unscripted unvoiced potential identity that has yet to come into full visibility and so when I think about the Q the M and the F Without the hyphens, that's really what I'm what I'm thinking about. And queer, not because uh, queers of color in France identify themselves as queer, because the term doesn't necessarily uh, translate well into French, but queer in terms of some of the scholarship related to disidentification. Thinking about uh, Jose Esteban Munoz's work on we both identify and disidentify with uh, a central national identity, and then Maghrebi having to. To do both with North Africa, but also Maghrebi French in terms of what happens uh, when these populations uh, exist in the diaspora, and then mm-hmm. also second generation when they are born in, in France and uh, either live in France or as we see in chapter one with some of my work, they immigrate to other parts of the, the Francophone world. And so thinking about those three constantly in conversation with each other, but without any reification happening to kind of solidify those those identities. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on this question of Maghrebi and French, Denis, just asking you to say a little bit about who the book deals with in terms of those of Maghrebi descent or origin who are born in France versus or in relationship to more recent arrivals, those who came as students or as um, older adults, citizens, emigres. Could you say a little bit about how the book deals with those different groups of Maghrebi French? Sure. This kind of took shape later on, but after I finished the interviews, I was I was seeing kind of a theme that was developing uh, among those who were born in France versus those who uh, were born in North Africa and eventually immigrated to France, and that uh, those who were French citizens, actually uh, second generation educated in France, they oftentimes had uh, more access to what I'm referring to as kind of uh, linked linguistic and symbolic capital uh, or flexible accumulation of language over time and space in a way that was different from those émigrés who who left the Maghreb and came to France. Whereas those who were educated in the Maghreb and who were part of kind of the post-colonial empire looked to France and looked to Paris in particular as, um, you know, kind of a secular mecca for their sexual identity. They were seeing Paris in a much more monolithic way mm-hmm. and kind of being inspired by what they saw in literary movements and in the media in, in in a different way. And so the book is structured kind of half and half between chapters one and two. Uh, Tufik and Ludovic Mohamed Zayed are French-born or um, Ludovic was actually born in North Africa but lived his most of his life in France. Those two chapters kind of focused on French citizens and their trajectory either staying in France or leaving France versus chapters three, four, and five with Abdelataya, Mehdi, Ben Atia, and other uh, young men from Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. Those uh, individuals seeing France as the Mecca, the final destination where they needed to go and come out and to to realize their own authentic selves, as they say, and mm-hmm. trying to show how what's at stake for those émigrés is very different. Yeah, and I'm going to want to come back to some of the differences between the men you talk about in the book, whether French-born or not, uh, some of the class and other types of differences. Uh, but before we get into the rest of the book and the chapters. I feel like we could spend the whole interview just talking about how you are negotiating in this work, queer theory, gender theory, studies and approaches to the question of diaspora, linguistics, ethnography. And we don't have time to get into all of it, but perhaps you could just talk a little bit about how this project came together at the kind of nexus of different theoretical frameworks and methodologies and how you made some of those choices. Yeah, you know, you were saying earlier that this is kind of a, the queer Maghrebi French is a clear 
nod to queer French. And I mean, if you look at my professional trajectory over the last 20 years, I, you know, I have a PhD in contemporary French civilization and cultural studies. Uh, but the majority, I mean, the, my heart and my passion has long been in language and sexuality studies. And mm. I've spent the last 20 years working with Lavender Languages and Linguistics, which wa- is an annual conference that has been held at American University in Washington, D.C. For the, for the past 25 years. So the book, at its heart, is uh, part of that scholarship within queer linguistics, but also marries, you know, the work in in French cultural studies and diaspora studies. It's also in conversation with a lot of the work in queer theory that's related to this turn recently. We've had this fascination with the child in queer studies and how, how queers do not participate in kind of the social reproduction of society. And if they don't have children, then what is their heritage? And so trying to think through what do queers and queers of colors in particular in this project, if they're not subscribing to a bourgeois uh, social reproductive system, uh, where they have children and they subscribe to marriage and they become part of that, um, that social fabric based in neoliberalism in a, in a late capitalist era, what do they leave after, after they're gone? And so part of that is trying to respond to that scholarship and saying that cultural production and characters within novels or uh, subjects within photographic shoots are characters on the big screen. Those are part of what, what we contribute as, in terms of filiation and heritage for the next generation. And so the book was recognized by the Association for Queer Anthropology. It got an honorable mention for the, the 2017 Ruth Benedict Prize for Queer Anthropology. And so even though, you know, I work in a French department and I identify with French cultural studies, I was honored to still be recognized by kind of the, the group where I situate my work primarily within queer linguistics and queer anthropology. Well, there's congratulations, first of all, <laughs> but there are so many questions I want to ask you to follow up on that. And I guess it's hard to think about what the best order is. So I'll just plunge in to start with this question of language and terminology that you use throughout the book flexible language. Can you tell us a little bit about what that concept is and how you're using it in the book in a general sense? Flexible language or flexible accumulation of language was a term that anthropologist William Leap developed. And, you know, it's it's really an accrual of scripts and other symbols across time and space. You know, it's not necessarily related to queer language um, uniquely, but uh, all of us, as we are able to access different cultures and different parts of the world or even through the Internet, kind of become communities in other spaces and other communities virtually, we're able to acquire a knowledge of uh, a certain way of speaking and being in the world. And uh, William Lee refers to it as flexible accumulation of language. Uh, and he's building on on Harvey, on David Harvey's work of flexible accumulation from, from the 80s and on Iowa Ong's work on flexible citizen, citizenship from the late 90s. And others have kind of run with similar terms, whether you want to refer to it as flexible accumulation of language or if you want to call it not code switching, but code swishing. Um, hmm. Carla Sena looks at this this notion of code swishing in a book called Tacit Subjects, where he's looking at, at Dominican queers in the United States. Uh, I've also referred to this in queer French as a vague English Creole in some ways, where this there's this Creolization of English and French, but in a Francophone cultural context. And Tufik refers to this, my queer Maghrebi French speaker, from chapter one, who's both a photographer and a performance artist, he talks about his own Middle Eastern coming out as a coming out à l'Oriental. And so you see kind of this blending of language traditions in one speech act, for example. It's a form of linguistics that doesn't, that's not specific to queerness or queer identity. Queer linguistics has moved away from reified identities and is really concerned more with kind of a politics of difference rather than descriptions of sexual difference 
uh, that suggests some sort of alignment between sexual identity and language practices. So it's it's a this process of flexible accumulation of language is something. It's a broad accumulation of symbolic and linguistic resources that we all have access to, really. I guess we're kind of proceeding with the terms that you use in the second part of the title, so language, and then the next one is temporalities, and you've already brought up and touched on this notion of time. Could you say a little bit more about the temporalities as a framing for this project? Yeah, so the temporalities, I mean, they're all interlinked. And so the work uh, in queer theory by Jack Halberstam on queer time and space and Didier Eribon's work on moving away from notions of homonormativity into multiple spatial uh, identities, multiple spatial experiences, talking about how and going back to this idea of if queers exist, do they only exist in a bourgeois society where they contribute to, you know, going to work, they have the same teleological uh, experiences, everybody else between being born, going to work, getting married and death, do we all go through those same rituals? Or are there are there alternative spaces and ways of being in the world that allow us to move outside of those those spaces of capitalist production, uh, social and sexual reproduction? And so that's something that Halberstam really underscores. And then Eribon kind of builds on Halberstam to talk about how in queer time, we not only stand outside of those, those spaces of production, but that we can actually move back and forth between various contexts, whether it's the family or the workspace or the the gay bar or uh, in other parts of my book, you know, the harem or coming out of the harem. So there, there, there are these multiple spaces and there are these multiple legacies and heritage heritages that can 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 be associated with those spaces. So just Following up on this notion of space in the book and how you're working with this, two things. One is the kind of recurrence of this theme of both in a practical sense and a conceptual sense of of mapping. And you talked about the map that closes your previous book and the the maps reappear in, in this book, the actual physical maps that these men have drawn. But you're also talking about this in terms of something that I want to get a little bit of clarification on before we move forward, this this notion of transfiliation and the movement yeah. to and from and how these men create spaces of belonging and ties. Yeah. Eric Fassin is actually the scholar who's informed us and taught us the most about, about filiation, this kind of biological and symbolic link between the parent and the child. And uh, uh, Camille Robsis has built on this notion of filiation in France, talking mm. about how it is attached to a, a 20th century body of work, both in anthropology and in psychoanalysis, uh, related to the anthropological order of both gender and generation. And so we see how France as a, as a space has long been associated with this obsession with, with filiation. And so, and Fassin makes a good distinction between the sacred in the United States and the sacred in France. And he says that if the sacred related to LGBT in, in debates in the U.S. has to do with marriage and whether or not people of the same sex have access to marriage. Marriage has become sanctified in the United States, whereas in, the, in France, filiation is kind of the, the last bastion of Frenchness that we must protect. When we see uh, marriage debates in France and the mariage pour tous and l'homoparentalité and issues of in vitro fertilization, queers in France lack access to these, these rights because of this sanctified notion of filiation that should be between a heterosexual family structure with one father, one mother, and the child. And this is something that, as we think about queer Maghrebi French citizens, we see them both relying on and disidentifying with those forms of filiation. And so as we move through through the book, we see ways that the harem or the the space of the the father within the Maghrebi family 
becomes both sanctified, but then is also at a point of disidentification. For example, one of the interlocutors from chapter two, Ludovic Mohammed Zayed, talks about the importance of the harem, but then also the notion of coming out of the harem to kind of come out of patriarchy to identify as a as a queer Maghrebi French citizen. In the introduction to the book, Denis, you describe the project as one that, and I'm quoting you here, offers a fresh critical framework for examining Muslim sexual minorities in relation to integration and immigration. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about how this project connects to broader um, historical political questions and issues and maybe even debates around immigration, migration, integration, the law. I know that's a huge question, but uh, given that the, that the book is largely focused on cultural production, I just wondered if you could say something about how it connects to some of those political and historical contexts. I've thought about this for a long time in terms of the veil. And so, you know, we've had, you know, for 15 or 20 years, we've had a, a large production of scholarship related to uh, the wearing of the veil in France, the politics of the veil, and the resurgence of women wearing the veil in France as kind of a barometer where France is in terms of gender identity, gender politics, and even what Fassin, Eric Fassin and Judith Circus have referred to as sexual democracy. If European Muslims and Muslims from North Africa are going to come to France, are they going to continue to wear the veil? And if they are, for what reasons? And also, if they're going to immigrate to France and they're eventually going to become citizens of the Republic, how tolerant are they of liberated women women who don't wear the veil, but also their open-mindedness or not to uh, same-sex marriage, for example. And so using the veil oftentimes or using the veiled woman as a measure of of where we are in France with religious uh, diversity, uh, gender diversity, and and tolerance. And so I'm thinking here about uh, Mayanthi Fernando's work on... Mm-hmm. Veiled, veiled women in France. And in Mayanthi's last chapter, she's trying to get veiled women in France to think intersectionally about how they could uh, join forces with other with other groups in France, such as Ardis, which is the group that helps LGBT uh, um, immigrants to find sexual asylum in France, thinking about to what degree are uh, veiled women able to uh, reach across human rights movements to build and gain gain rights across uh, groups uh, where they could work together with other human rights groups like LGBT groups to move the rights movement forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the other work that comes to mind for me, is Catherine Ressiguier's work on uh, reinventing the Republic. She has this beautiful chapter at the end of her book on how sans-papier, prostitué et pédé can work together as minorities within France who can build a bridge of solidarity and universal difference to make rights claims in a in a country like France, where universalism is the the discourse, the political discourse that continues to have currency today. I want to ask you, Denis, about everything from the fieldwork and interviews that you did to the ways that the book is moving across multiple genres: literature, visual art, performance, film you know, what even some of the challenges were negotiating all of these different types of texts? Yeah, it's a great question. I always say that my methodology, first and foremost, is critical discourse analysis. And so Mm -hmm. thinking about the ideology, the ideological underpinnings of everyday speech acts, and how they tie together with larger political discourses or historical discourses. It's a, it's a kind of marriage and a delicate ba- balancing act between critical discourse analysis, but then semiotics of culture, thinking about visual culture and literary texts 
and uh, cinematic texts. There's a sense of intertext between everyday speech and institutional discourses and how those institutional discourses trickle their way down to uh, everyday, everyday speakers. The interview process and the, the interviews themselves took a period of about four or five years to, to complete. Mm. There were uh, over 50 interviews of uh, men for Chapter 5, for example, men that uh, I connected with through Facebook and other social media. And it was by word of mouth that I met, met these men and interviewed them, transcribed their, their interviews, and looked basically for the intertext, kind of the echo effect between interviews. And I said, okay, there's something here that I want to underscore. It's something that's common to 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 a series of interviewees to build that context in and around one particular interview that I would highlight. I want to ask you now, Denis, about uh, Tufix coming out at Oriental and coming out of France. But before we talk about the chapter, I have to take this occasion to ask you about the cover of the book. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll let you describe it and just how it came to be. It's quite a striking cover. I don't, I'm not remembering off the top of my head the cover of your previous book, but maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the genesis of that design. It actually gets back to your earlier question about the queer Maghrebi French without any without any hyphens or without any other separators or mm-hmm. diacritics between the letters. I mean, so when Tufik and I talked about him doing the book cover, he was already on to a new project where he was he was featuring himself uh, with the beard and the veil in his character he calls Ludmilla Mary. Ludmilla Mary, also two names, Ludmilla coming from Eastern Europe and Mary coming from kind of Christian Europe. Um, so there's this veiled, bearded character on the front cover kind of embodying various identity positions simultaneously. Mm-hmm. The QMF in capital letters, without any hyphens, kind of thinking about text messaging or SMS messaging and how these identities emerge virtually on magazine covers, how communities communicate through uh, virtual channels, through text messaging and, and other other electronic forms. And then underneath the title Queer McGrubby French, these quotations from various chapters, right? And so each of the themes, language, temporalities, and transfiliations on the cover. And then these, these blurbs, like you'd get these, these short pieces on the cover of Vogue about, you know, what swimsuit to wear in the <laughs> summer. What are the what are the ten ways to please your man, and what's the what's the hottest color of lipstick for you know for the season? And so you know you've got these little quips of two feet talking about language, and it says the curves of my lips rewrite the history of Islam. Temporalities. You have Ludovic who says I come out of harem of the harem and of haram, and transfiliation. Abdullah saying I'm the son of Jean Genet and Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. This kind of in a sensationalized. Uh, catchy, glossy magazine cover, yeah, to show the various the various types of cultural productions that are that are being analyzed within the within the book. This also gets back to the notion of the ethnographer and his methodology. And so, in many ways, when I wrote the chapters, I was in conversation with with each of the men in, that is that are featured in the chapters, and the the ethnography in a lot of ways it becomes another form of filiation or transfiliation where not only am I recording their, you know, their experiences, but they're also, they're informing me and my, my own methodology by giving back in, in different ways, whether it's giving feedback, written feedback or verbal feedback on a chapter that was in the book or allowing them to uh, feature their their artwork on on the cover. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting choice, and like it makes the book a unique object. I think I wanted it to be as much about the men and being able to really voice their experience, and the book being theirs as much as as it is something that I've authored. So let's talk a little bit about. Tufik, this you know French-born Moroccan photographer and performance artist who lives in Montreal. How does he embody uh, and perform QMF, and what role does he play in the book in this in this chapter and as a kind of 
figure for what you're trying to get at here? When you look at uh, my first book, Queer uh, French, a lot of what um, was kind of the focus of that book was the use of cartography in the maps. And so the, the kind of crescendo in the book is really in the later chapters related to the maps, whereas in Queer Maghrebi French, what you see in terms of the order of the chapters is really how the order that I that I met the men and wrote about the men. And I first met Tufik through a professional uh, contact at, at the 20th and 21st century French and Francophone Studies Conference. Uh, a colleague of mine from Carleton College, I was presenting a piece on queer Maghrebi experience in online communities. And she came up to me after the talk and she said, you absolutely have to meet Tufik. And so I wrote, I wrote to her friend Tufik and he immediately wrote back. And uh, I was I was working summers at the time teaching uh, on study abroad in Paris, and we met one summer in Paris, and that's really where where the idea for this for this book in some ways uh, sparked, and also kind of started to fill in that that gap of kind of that erasure within the Marais for me was all right. Here's a here's a guy who was French born of Moroccan descent, who his parents had had brought him to Casablanca for part of his childhood. And then he moved back to Paris for his teenage years, his formative coming out years, and eventually migrates to Quebec where he begins his, his uh, photography and his performance work. I divide the chapter into two sections, his kind of coming out period in France and his coming out à l'Oriental with the various characters that he embodies. And, you know, Ludmilla Mary on the cover of the book is one of them, kind of the bearded lady without who doesn't live on one side of the hyphen or the other. And then his other characters, whether it's Fatima, who is a, who is a veiled uh, conservative Muslim uh, who... Uh, migrates to Canada and works in a works in a company with liberated Quebecois women. So you see kind of this this projection of Tufik and his experience as a queer Maghrebi Frenchman uh, into his characters. And there's a there's a spectrum of from conservative Islam to liberated Quebecois uh, individual. And his projection of what I, you know, what I'm calling his allo self, you know, mm. kind of his electronic offspring on the on the screen and also on the runway because he eventually embodies. He lets Ludmilla Mary come into real time and space, and he uh, walks the runway in uh, downtown Montreal or on University of Arizona campus where I work. He came and did mm. a presentation here where he he embodies those differences in real time so he can watch his uh he can watch how people react to his art form in in uh, public space and so his coming out at l'oriental because of these this broad range of characters but then his eventual coming out of france because he felt in a lot of ways as if his artwork kind of touched a, a sensitive post-colonial nerve among french folk and that they would oftentimes find his his critique of Islam or his critique of French culture, um, because of its lack of dealing with Islam properly, they would oftentimes deem it as cute or childlike. And he never felt like he was taken seriously in France for his artwork. And so he ended up moving to Montreal and uh, kind of has, has gained a gained a following in Montreal because of what he considers to be a space of multiculturalism where the language of multiculturalism uh, works in a productive in a productive way uh, that's very different from kind of that universalizing language of France. The second chapter of the book, Denis, focuses on another fascinating uh, figure, Ludovic Mohamed Zaed. Could you tell us a little bit about him and what role he plays in the book? Yeah, and so he's an interesting he's an interesting counterexample to Tufik, right? And so uh, when I was writing about Tufik, I also at this about the same time came across Ludovic Mohamed's uh, book called Le Coran et la Chair, and it's really his own experience of growing up in France, both as a um, a practicing 
Muslim in France, but as a as a teenager and a young adult who was interested in anthropology and the anthropology of religion, who was interested in feminist scholarship, who was interested in queer theology. And in comparison to Tufik, who kind of comes out of France and does very utopian-like portraits of what it's like to be a queer of color outside of France with Ludovic Mary and Fatima and other characters. Ludovic is really kind of keeping us grounded in France. Uh, he's interested in kind of a, this dual filiation between the, the prophet Mohammed and this universal message that uh, France uh, celebrates. And so he's, he's kind of giving us uh, a reread of the Quran and the teachings of the Prophet. He sees the Prophet uh, Muhammad as kind of a very tolerant uh, spiritual leader who accepted and welcomed effeminate men in his house. And so he ties the Prophet's house to that of what he's trying to create within France as a, he's not only a scholar, but he's also an imam. And he founds the first uh, gay mosque of Paris. And he forms the uh, organization Homosexuel Musulman de France. And what he tries to do is to kind of create this ecumenical approach to religion. The mosque is actually in a uh, Buddhist space in Paris. And so it's his way of trying to say we're open to all religions. We're open to all denominations, all uh, sexual orientations. And this ecumenical approach to this celebration of uh, religion is his own universal language that he attributes back to France. Denis, what is the what is the reaction to well to Tufik, but also to the work of Ludovic Mohamed Zayed in in France? Yeah, so I mean, the imams of Imam de France, they have not been in support of the gay mosque in Paris. And so he really kind of remains largely unrecognized mm. by uh, the, the Muslim leaders in France. And so oftentimes the, the, the group Homosexuel Musulman de France, they'll go on pilgrimage and they'll do uh, academic workshops and religious workshops. Um, but they're, they're largely autonomous. Uh, they're not recognized by a larger community. Mm-hmm. Now, Tufik, I would say the same thing. Tufik's work has largely not been taken seriously in France. He even tells me this story, which is not in the book, of how uh, he was invited by the Ambassade de France in Washington, D.C. to display his work. Uh, But as soon as he started hanging his pictures in the Ambassade de France, they constructed an artificial wall at the entrance to the Ambassade so that visitors who came into the, the embassy wouldn't necessarily their eyes wouldn't fall upon his portraits as they were first entering the, the, the embassy. And he said it was an interesting way to be put back into the closet. The third chapter in the book, Denis, focuses on Abdullah Tayyaz's queer Moroccan family and transmission of Baraka. So can you tell us what that title refers to and how you're dealing with this author and filmmaker, this French author and filmmaker? Abdullah was one of the few who really didn't want to be interviewed for the book. He um huh. He didn't want to be heavy handed and he also didn't want to he was more interested in my own interpretation of his of his text. And so what I decided to do in the first part of the book, uh, the first part of the chapter was to look at his published letters to his family. There's this theme of kind of this um, strong, rebellious female character in his letters. You know, he's very much inspired by his mother, Mambarka, and, uh, you know, to the point where he actually inspired me and I the, the dedication to the book is to my own mother, who in lots of ways was her own revolutionary figure. And so we see the revolutionary figure uh, through the females in his writing. And she's kind of the source of all subversion and all strength at the same time. And he he uses her as kind of the source of his own sense of queerness and revolution that he's fighting for in uh, contemporary Morocco that he calls sterile because uh, the government has not allowed the citizens to kind of have an open forum to, to express their, express their differences. And so in lots of ways, uh, the queerness comes from a strong rebellious mother. She becomes the force to imagine, reimagine the nation in lots of ways for him. And, 
at the same time, Mimbarka and Baraka kind of almost have that same ring to them. Baraka being kind of to kneel down in terms of the, the verb, but also Baraka as the noun as kind of this luck or this blessing. This is a blessing that often gets transmitted from during the storytelling from mother to child. And we see both a sense of sacred Baraka in the book, and then kind of what I'm referring to as a, a secular Baraka, when he goes off to university and then eventually goes off to Europe to advance his, uh, advance his education, there's this transmission of secular knowledge, whether it's a canon of literary production or whether it's, a, it's an influence of popular culture. You see this interesting kind of confluence of strong, rebellious females from a sacred Morocco mixed with the, the secular imagery of Monroe, Isabella Gianni, and others. You go on in the book, Denis, to talk about the work of the Tunisian screenwriter and filmmaker Mehdi Ben Atia. Could you tell us a little bit about him and how his work engages with these questions of temporality and transfiliation? Yeah. So, you know, as I was saying, that chapter one and two, Tufik and Ludovic, Ludovic Mohamed Zayed, they're very much products of France, whereas Abdullah and Mehdi in chapters three and four are really products of North Africa mm-hmm. and moving from moving from North Africa to France. And both of them, I would say, are influenced by European and uh, Middle Eastern images of uh, strong female characters and subversion, but also uh, they're influenced by a notion of global genet, kind of this this marginality, this bad sexual citizen that I've termed in in queer French, and how that those sexual outlaws can kind of get re recuperated within the bourgeois family. Mm-hmm. And so in chapter four, we look at both an interview with Mehdi and uh, an analysis of his film, Le Fil, The String. And what um, what Mehdi says in his interview is, je suis le fils aîné du fils aîné du fils aîné. And at that point in the interview, we both laugh because we know that there's a heavy burden that's associated with the eldest male child in the Maghrebi family. And the the film goes on to show how uh, his return, he's actually Tunisian, his return or the, the protagonist's return to Tunisia to announce to his mother that he has fallen in love with a with a Frenchman is a very heavy burden. And the way that it gets represented in the film is through this this white string that's tied around his waist. And each time he tries to have a conversation with his mother, the string reappears and it kind of draws him back into the house. It's somehow attached either to the kitchen or it's attached to his bedroom. And, and we see him kind of bound up within this string uh, that doesn't allow him to cut the cord, so to speak, with his traditional Maghrebi bourgeois family uh, that expects him to, as the fils aîné, to bear children and to carry forward the father's name. I just want to pause here, Denis, to ask something that maybe is a little less significant in the fifth chapter, but runs throughout the book which is this question of how these different artists, writers, filmmakers, performers interact with technology. Um, It's really something that comes up again and again throughout the book. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about the, the role of technology in the presentation, in the conceptualization, and in the, the lives of these QMF figures. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and so just in the notion of QMF, we had talked about right. kind of electronic electronic speak, and so and each of them using technology to a different degree. Maybe less so, maybe less so for Ludovic Mohamed Zayed, other than through the uh, publication of uh, his his book Le Coran et la Chair, and with his doctoral dissertation from the École des but maybe in terms of, at least for Tufik, Abdullah, and Mehdi that we've already mm-hmm. talked about, thinking about how the screen is a way to 
project oneself into the future. Uh, and so many of them are, all of, the, all of them actually, Tufik, Mehdi, and Abdullah at least, they're all trying to imagine a way to either put themselves, put themselves in conversation uh, with their families through a projection of those family members on the screen, or thinking about how they'll fit into some future future moment. Mm-hmm. If we take Abdullah Taya, for example, we see moments where he expresses this desire to come out to his father, although his father has already passed. And so he, he speaks of this long-term desire to resurrect his father on the big screen. And this would then allow him to put a gay character on the screen with the father in order to put them in dialogue with each other and maybe create an alternative utopian script than the one that he was able to to live before his father passed away. Similarly, Mehdi does the same thing where uh, we return home in the story of Le Fille to the burial of his father. And it's not until we uh, it's not until the father has passed that we're then able to revive him on the screen. We see these flashbacks to the hospital where his father was sick, and we see conversations between the father and the mother about their son and whether they debate whether or not he's a homosexual. And it's actually the father on his deathbed who's saying that it, it's okay for his son to be homosexual as long as he doesn't show it in public. And so sometimes we see these tolerant parental figures that reemerge uh, because on the big screen, because they've been revived by the QMFs themselves. Mm-hmm. The same thing for, for Tufik. The, there's this moment in his coming out story where he talks about how uh, he didn't go home to see his parents in Paris and say, Mom, Dad, I'm gay. What he did was, through his use of technology, he brought a USB, USB key home and he put it into their large screen television. He showed them his character's <laughs> the veiled Fatima on the big screen. And it was at that moment that his father understood, oui, papa, je porte le voile. And that was his way of understanding his son's own sense of difference, whether it be gender difference or sexual difference. But it was through the visual transmission of that image that allowed him to communicate his difference to his family. Wow. So in the fifth chapter of the book, Denis, you featured the words and and lives and stories of these three anonymous working and middle class men who you interviewed. And I guess I want to ask first and foremost about the relationship between this chapter dealing with these anonymous men and the rest of the book where you're dealing with these public figures yeah, and so um, I kind of come back in chapter five as a response to all of these beautiful utopian images of the previous chapters. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Tufik paints these gorgeous utopian spaces where Ludmilla Mary can thrive. Uh, Ludovic Mohamed Zayed, you know, he writes beautifully about the revolutionary figure of the prophet. Uh, Abdella writes about the revolutionary figure of the mother and uh, Mehdi writes about kind of the eventual acceptance of his Tunisian mother of his uh, French, his male French lover and their ability to cut the cord with the mother, but then to retie new knots with with new family configurations. And the the point of chapter five is to show that different speakers have different levels of access to travel, to education, to economic gain. And this gets back to kind of the importance of doing ethnography and the tradition of language and sexuality studies, trying to trying to contextualize queer theory uh, in relation to the real material conditions on the ground of the, the folks that we're talking to. And it was, it was a way of getting, it was a way of giving voice to members of French society who otherwise would, would not, uh, who, who don't have a large following. 
and who don't necessarily have an out, an artistic outlet. Not to say that they're not educated, but that they don't necessarily have the same um, artistic gift or the uh, the literary gift, etc. And so, to make sure that we we return to the material conditions of a variety of French emi- uh, of French citizens or um, North African immigrés in the diaspora, to show that they they don't all all of these stories don't end in uh, kind of in, in a, a utopian view of or or a poetic you know a, a life in poetry. <laughs> Um, I'm just wondering, Denis, there are a number of women who appear in these texts and um, works of art and films, and certainly the figure of femininity is there throughout. But I'm wondering about the, the L and the T, I guess. How do you think about the issues and questions that you're exploring in this book in relationship to what other scholars or other work and cultural production might be out there on lesbian Maghrebi French, trans Maghrebi French figures and their work. How do you think about this project in relationship to to those things? Yeah, this is part of the methodology in the first chapter where I talk about in the 90s and the early 2000s when I posted recruitment ads in Teichu magazine and online uh, through illico.com, it was easy as a queer white middle-class academic to interview other queer working-class middle-class subjects for my first book whereas for this second book it was really it was a really different methodology it was it was having to present myself uh, as an outsider to France as a Franco-American as a, a, a queer Franco-American who maybe spoke French uh, with a little bit of an accent, much like some of the interlocutors in my book. Even gaining access to queers of color in France, not being from that community, and sometimes uh, not gaining enough trust from the folks I was interviewing for them to allow me to record the interviews. I remember I was halfway through an interview with somebody and he said, you have to stop the tape. And, you know, I don't, I don't want, I don't want this to go forward because there wasn't a level of trust. And so I thought, okay, um, as a non, as a non L and as a non T, I thought, okay, the, the battle, the battle to gain trust and to be part of, to be seen as somebody who's trustworthy was already a challenge. And at the same time, I was starting to meet um, young queer lesbian, queer of color lesbian academics in Paris. And I was saying to myself, okay, I'm going to work in conversation uh, with people like Salima Amari. Salima Amari just recently published a book about lesbians in the diaspora, queer uh, Maghrebi uh, lesbians in the diaspora. And thinking, okay, I'm going to work in conversation with uh, scholars like Salima uh, with scholars like Bronwyn Winter, who's also worked on asylum, LGBT asylum seekers in France, and to compare my stories, but not not speak on behalf of those communities. This is kind of a natural, I guess, transition to the epilogue of the book in some ways, what you're describing methodologically and in terms of some of the connections that you're looking to make with other scholars working on different communities, because in the epilogue, of the book, Denis, you're talking about the, there's a kind of hopefulness about how this book might contribute to thinking about how communities across different minority groups in France might work together, learn from some of the things that you've explored in the book. Could you say a little bit about that? You know, there's as much of me in the book as there is each of the each of the men in the book and, you know, having been raised Franco-American, having been raised Catholic, what Ludovic Mohamed Zayed does in his chapter, kind of this ecumenical approach to religion and this universal 
message that he's trying to bring, mm. it resonates with me. And it obviously resonates with Taya as well in the epilogue, because Taya is using kind of his own flexible accumulation of language. He's using kind of these images of global Islam, married with uh, images of global Christianity. He's talking about this young man in uh, Morocco who was attacked in public. And he's he's putting himself in that moment with this victim, kind of like you you would as you were watching a movie, right? And he he talks about this victim as a martyr, this walk to Calvary, and there's kind of this apocalyptic scene with the crowd that's attacking this victim. And I think Taya is moving in in really interesting ways with his own flexible language. And I call this chapter flexible language and activism because this is a language that needs to be developed. Each of us needs to kind of learn how to relate in the world and relate to different groups and whether you want to call it kind of an intercultural way of being in the world or an intersectional approach to human rights. There's this, there's this way that we need to speak. This art of intercultural speech has, has been lost. This way of talking both locally in terms of local political and cultural context and the material going back to the material conditions on the ground but also then thinking about how this language can resonate glo globally on a, on a on a universal scale of human rights and so thinking about how each of us through our words we can create a revolution and taya calls this a, a mot révolution in each of the chapters we see you know in tufik we see that there's a coming out à l'oriental in Ludovic's chapter, we see it coming out of the harem. In Abdullah's chapter, we see how it's a, you know it's the story of uh, the son of Mambarka of sacred and, and secular Baraka, the son of Genet and uh, Marilyn Monroe. You know, and in the chapter that we didn't spend as much time talking about with the with the men that I interviewed, that you know where their names have been changed, we see other forms of coming out. It's a coming out of a country uh, that my grandmother never knew or a coming out of a banlieue, coming out of the fat Arab body. There are these, these various ways of talking locally that then connect up globally with other forms of human rights. You know, trying to think about what is a, f a way that in, in French studies, we can begin working intersectionally to solve some of these problems of inequity within uh, a universal way of being in the Republic, you know. And Catherine Ressiguier is a good example of this type of work. I also mentioned uh, Louis-Georges Tain and his work on la transversalité. He's at kind of at the forefront of this. And I think uh, Christiane Taubira and her work as a, as a person of color who stood at the front of the uh, marriage debates and same-sex marriage in France and the importance of each of us kind of working beyond our own uh, identity category to find a, a language, a flexible language that's going to accommodate all of us. And this is particularly important, I think, in France where the universal straitjacket has really kind of, it's kind of strangled, strangled in many ways the... Uh, the way we talk about diversity. It's really fascinating. And, and like I said, you know, there's a kind of optimism to this uh, project going forward. So, Denis, I have one last question for you, speaking uh -huh. of going forward. What are you working on now that this book is done? Well, so I'm currently head of department. <laughs> okay, so nothing else. <laughs> Uh, I'm working on leadership skills, and I'm working on um, I'm working on uh, building uh, a department of the 21st century. But okay. when when I'm not doing that, the the part that's hopeful to me is that it's it's bringing it's bringing all of this back to what I hope will be a third third volume of this set. And so uh, I'm thinking that the um, the book will be something about queer Quebec diaspora. And that uh, Tufik will be at the forefront of it. Tufik is doing some really 
interesting new work um, related to legends of the lumberjacks in 19th and early 20th century Quebec. And he ties the lumberjacks to images of the boat people who've come over uh, through kind of these diasporic flows from North Africa to France. And so looking at now how Tufik is retelling the Quebecois tales of the Boucheron and how uh, the the people who wash up on the shores of Quebec uh, have their own new story to tell as they become pioneers in a new Francophone province. I'm looking to uh, some of Tufik's recent work related to Quebec, the queer Quebec diaspora, and also hoping to do some new field work on Quebec. Uh, all of that to say, it brings me back to my own my own roots as uh, as a Provencher in Quebec, and so I'm also hoping there'll be there'll be a chapter that kind of helps round out that project uh, with my own my own diasporic wanderings. Well, that sounds completely fascinating. As somebody who grew up in Quebec, I'm very <laughs> curious to hear more about about that project. Denis, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book. Roxanne, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. 